Welcome to the New Politics Podcast, the place where we provide analysis and opinion on Australian politics and fill in all the gaps left behind by the mainstream media. In this episode, we look at the 2019 budget, a wrap-up of the weirdest parliamentary term ever, and it still hasn't been called yet, but we'll kickstart the 2019 federal election campaign. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, amateur horologist and Sherlockian scholar. Everyone's been talking about back in black, but it might be a case of seeing red. The federal budget has been predicted to be a surplus of $7 billion, but very few experts feel that it's still going to be a surplus when the actual figures are announced in September 2020. And, of course, by that time, the federal election will be well and truly over. It's the first budget surplus since 2007, and it plays to the perception that the Liberals are better financial managers, even though the evidence suggests that both Liberal and Labor are financially competent, and both apply the required fiscal discipline to manage the economy. But just like the 2016 election, which was also announced in the shadows of a federal election campaign, there's an element of smoke and mirrors which would make Archimedes proud, and there's a strong possibility it will never be implemented. It depends on the Liberal National Party winning the next election and, even then, being able to have its budget passed by Parliament, something it has not been able to do since it first won office in 2013. So what's your reading about this budget, David? Is it it a workable budget? Is it a good budget? Is it a political budget? What does it actually mean this time around? A lot of commentators have said it's smoke and mirrors. A projected surplus if every single thing winds up, which is highly unlikely, and A lot of that will have to do with things that are really out of the control of the government. Budgets are always impacted by international events, impacted by national events, disasters, unexpected bankruptcies of major companies, and Donald Rumsfeld's unknowns unknowns really come into play here. It would be like you or I saying, well, we expect a profit of $2.1 million dollars next financial year based on a whole range of things that we have no control over. It might happen, and I hope it does, but I haven't bought the new Ferrari yet. We'll put it that way. Budgets are usually around 5 to 10% out when the actual figures are reported nine months after the end of the financial year. And there are so many things that can happen within a 12-month period in the world of politics, the world of finance and the economy. So there's a lot of things that need to fall into place for the figures to actually be correct. But in the government's favour, last year's budget was actually $9 billion better than announced in the initial budget papers. So there's things that can go right, there's things that can go wrong, but it seems like this time around, there's a little bit of trickery involved there. For example, there's $3.8 billion from the NDIS, the National Disability Insurance Scheme, that was not used up in 2018-19. And that's there's another $1.5 billion that won't be used up in 2019-20. So that goes towards the, the surplus figures. So it seems like there's a little bit of trickery involved. They're taking from one place and putting it into another, announcing things that will last three years or four years rather than the 12 months. And then it's almost like subtracting and, and addition and then taking away the number that you first thought of. It's the spin of the marketing man. And I think one thing that has been shown is that he's not a terribly good marketing man. 
he keeps blaming Labor, which you can probably get away with in the first term. You can't really get away with it in the second term. And same with the Labor Party. There are maybe one or two things you can say, well, this was a policy that came out and, you know, the bomb that was set with it is now going off. But their default position is it's Labor's fault, it's Labor's fault, it's Labor's fault. One strategy that the government has been trying to trying to push, and this includes Josh Frydenberg, the Treasurer, and Scott Morrison, they're trying to relate the, the overall budget figures of government to a household budget. Now, the two are totally different. Running a government and running an economy, a national economy, is totally different to running a household budget. But most people understand a household budget. They don't understand how the overall economy works. They've been pushing the message that surpluses are great, deficits are, are bad, and that's how the common household relates to these economic issues, that a large debt is not good, having a surplus is fantastic. Now, don't get me wrong, national debt does need to be managed, and it's up to $550 billion at the moment. Overall, the economy does need to be managed, and generally you're trying to get debt down so it does become manageable and workable. We're not in a debt crisis at the moment. There is that old adage that when the government is in surplus, the community is in debt. Surpluses are not always good and deficits are not always bad. So it just depends on what the economic circumstances of the country are. We can see where their savings were made, the types of priorities. They didn't get extra tax income from big companies. Uh, they didn't cut policies that benefit already rich business and, and taxpayers. They took it out of the NDIS, a, a labour initiative anyway. The poorest and most vulnerable the National Disability Insurance Scheme is where they got their money from. So someone has hurt from this. I'm pretty sure that the number of people needing the NDIS didn't go down over the last 12 months. So they've taken money away from it. If anything, the amount of people that require access to the NDIS has probably gone up, but there's some sort of issue within the whole process of accessing that. And governments need to be fully aware of making sure that the allocation of funds go to the people that need it the most. But it just seems like there's been a, a shortfall in the administrative support services for being able to get people access to this. And that's where they've saved quite a bit of money. Budgets don't seem to have the same impact that they used to. So maybe 20 or 30 years ago, the, the news headlines for the budget would be going on for maybe two weeks or thereabouts. And it'd be the strong discussion, within, certainly within the political sector and to a lesser extent within the community. But these days, there's the big budget splash on, on the Tuesday. Then there's the huge headlines on the Wednesday. There's the federal opposition response to the budget. And then it's almost gone. Like five days after the budget was announced and it's almost like it's yesterday's news. I think there's a couple of factors here. One, Josh Frydenberg is a bit out of his depth. I think that's clear. So he's keeping his head down as he tries to explain things that he's not really sure how to explain compared to, say, a Paul Keating or a Peter Costello who, who are very much on top of all the issues that they needed to be on top of. We've had a couple of treasurers... Frydenberg, Morrison, Hockey, who haven't been as across the economic arguments as perhaps we may have liked. I think, too, they haven't had a budget passed yet, so it's really a bad news story for the government. Yet another major policy announcement that will go nowhere because it will be blocked in the Senate. 
Now, Labor has been very strategic about this. They don't block the appropriations, the salaries and the already existing contracts. So government keeps running. After 1975, they, they, they don't want to be tarred with the same brush. But the new policy initiatives have been frozen by Labor, Greens and the independents for all kinds of reasons. This, of course, must be frustrating for the government. There's not very much they can do about it except maybe have better policy. The opposition always has the right of reply to a budget announcement, and that's what Bill Shorten did. But the responsibilities are different for an opposition leader. They're not in government, so they're not giving out specific details about costings. It's more about poking holes in the budget and applying a broad brush of what they intend to do if they manage to form government at the next election. Bill Shorten was doing his best to neutralise the government's budget, pretty much matching the coalition's plans for tax cuts, but also pointing out the key policy differences. In Labor's case, the proposed changes to negative gearing for housing, capital gains tax, and reining in franking credits. And he also made a key announcement about free cancer treatments. Has Labor done enough to offer the electorate key policy differences compared to the government, or do they need to do a little bit more in this area? If the polls are right... It's almost to the stage, I think, where Bill Shorten could say the policy is to burn down orphanages and close down the RSPCA and bulldoze children's hospitals. And if the polls are right, there have been a lot of polls suggesting that the govern- the federal government is very much on the nose. I think the, the, the cancer announcement was a, a very canny thing because it wasn't something that was on the radar. Yet cancer is one of those things that everybody is affected by either directly or indirectly. I think one in three people will have some form of cancer over their lifetime, whether it's a relatively curable uh, and treatable form of the disease or whether it's more serious. Everybody pretty much knows someone who has needed treatment. So it's one of those things that I think is one, necessary, but two, will resonate with a large number of people in the community who have either had treatment will need treatment or will know somebody who has either had or will need treatment, pretty much be 100% of people. I think that was probably a very smart move. And it's taken away from the other debates, which the government has talking points on. So this really is the last roll of the dice for the government, the the budget announcement. And it just means that throughout the next election campaign, whenever that's called, they'll be able to use all of their key points from the budget. But it is, it is that factor about whether it's actually going to be enough to pull them over the line or get them close to the line. And they're probably just using this as a little bit of a stepladder to get back into the game and see how things go. And in an election campaign, pretty much anything can happen. Anything can and does. Just ask Michael Daly in New South Wales. The other point I should make is that the idea of equating federal budgets to household budgets dates back to at least the early 1930s, where Joseph Lyons, who was prime minister, he had been a Labor treasurer, defected to the other side and became prime minister, said that his budget is much like, I think he said, the mothers of Australia who have to make one shilling do the work of two. It didn't work then either, of course. This was in the midst of the Great Depression, which was, which was caused by international factors well beyond the control of the Australian government. Well, I guess it's just a question of whether it will resonate in 2019. 
politicians of all persuasions will try different strategies and tactics to to make their policies and make their economic practices more relatable to people in the electorate which includes looking at the household budget we'll see if that's enough in a few weeks time you're listening to new politics you can subscribe to us on itunes listen through soundcloud and spotify or find us at newpolitics.com.au up next continuing corruption in politics the politician who shall not be named and a fine way to end the 45th parliament a few days of Parliament last week, the last sitting days before the election, but it seemed that aside from the budget, there was enough time for some more corrupt practices in politics. We found out more about One Nation and its relationship with guns, and we had a censure for the politician the media doesn't care to name anymore, Fraser Anning. A Liberal minister was caught out allocating grants, even though the applications for the program haven't even opened yet. The Al Jazeera network caught out One Nation's James Ashby and Steve Dixon in an undercover three-year sting, and Fraser Anning was censured by the Senate for being racist and subhuman. The 45th Parliament doesn't officially end until the election is called, but the final week was a reminder of how dysfunctional this term has been. The removal of a Prime Minister, a minority government, and a motley collection of very strange people in the Senate. So it's all been quite amusing to watch, but there's a feeling of being shortchanged by this parliament and the public does expect better. It's a parliament that has been very much run on the agenda of the IPA. Fewer sitting days, cuts, cuts, cuts to social services, shoveling money to the rich and famous on the weekend. We saw how Barnaby Joyce allowed a phone tower to be put on one of Gina Reinhardt's properties where she gets a fee for hosting it. It's, I think, very symptomatic of how the government has been. The Senate is a mess. And I think that is the fault of the the major parties for not really being inspiring enough and people have turned to other smaller parties. It's also a result of the changes to the Senate voting and the double dissolution election in 2016, which made it a lot easier for fringe parties and fringe senators to become elected. And I guess the quality of ministers in this parliament hasn't really helped either. Usually the position of worst minister in in any government is easy to determine and they don't last long. I couldn't tell you who the worst minister in parliament is at the moment because each time you think, ah, it's definitely this one, someone else pops their head up. So Greg Hunt, Peter Dutton, Melissa Price, Michaelia Cash, (laughs) Josh Frydenberg, Well, generally, the electorate does want to see good government, irrespective of what their political persuasions are. So whether they're generally a Liberal voter or a Labor voter or a swing voter or a Green voter, whatever the case might be, they generally want to see good government in operation. And we just haven't had much of good government over the past three years. Two prime ministers have been have been thrown out since the Liberal government was first put in. We're on to the third prime minister with Scott Morrison. The machinery government still continues, irrespective of how poor the parliament might actually be, how poor the prime minister is, or how poor those ministers are. So the machinery of the government is pushed forward by the public service, and that all operates behind the scenes. But electorally and publicly, we're not seeing very much of a good performance. 
I think the baseline for any political leader should be, are they going to embarrass us when they go overseas? We knew when Malcolm went overseas, he'd be sophisticated enough to um, not embarrass us, even if we didn't agree with what he was doing. We can't really say that with uh, Scott Morrison and we couldn't say that with Tony Abbott. That's not to say that Malcolm Turnbull was the great prime minister that, you know, was cut short. I think he wasn't terribly good either, but he did at least pass that baseline. Well, definitely when members of parliament or any political representatives go overseas, you definitely don't want them to embarrass the country. But we had a lot of embarrassment through One Nation. Only one of them is is an MP, and that's Steve Dixon. He's actually a One Nation representative in the Queensland Parliament. And James Ashby is the Chief of Staff for Pauline Hanson. It was a three-year sting that was operated by Al Jazeera. They're a broadcaster based in Qatar. But we found out all of these things that were going on behind the scenes. One Nation trying to access money from the National Rifles Association in the US and trying to weaken Australian gun laws. Not not immediately, but eventually through getting funding and getting strategy advice from the NRA. You did mention before about MPs and political apparatchiks not embarrassing Australia overseas, but I, I think in this case One Nation did embarrass Australia quite severely. Certainly they did. Without wanting to sound like a tinfoil conspiracy theorist, it is this American, far-right-wing American that comes from funding from things like the Koch brothers through Rupert Murdoch, through the IPA, through... There's a pattern of this. The Australian Association for Cultural Freedom, which does things like fund Quadrant magazine in the 1960s, was actually funded by the CIA. This is historical record, um, and this has been admitted by key people within it. Richard Craigier set it all up, and it was designed to undermine the threat of communism by having intelligent debate that leaned to the right with things like Quadrant. They do things like have modern art exhibitions because uh, a lot of particularly Stalinists and Maoists didn't like modern art. So again, it was dividing the left in such a way that more progressive leftists would find it difficult to align themselves. Now, these days, it's not really... I don't think it's the CIA. I think it's more these private institutes like the Koch Brothers Foundations that help fund the NRA, that help fund neoliberal organisations with the idea of stripping back the power of government, mostly to reduce taxes and to reduce wages and to come back to shoveling money up using the long discredited trickle-down economics model. The Al Jazeera documentary on One Nation, that was... It's been regarded as the sting of the year. Now, the year's only three months old, so we might see more of that later on. As far as watching it on television was concerned, it was absolutely riveting and fantastic journalism. But there was a question about whether it was ethical or not. There was a public interest story involved here. The National Rifle Association in the US, they're very secretive, so it's very difficult to get inside information from there. But anything that tries to do something in the domestic area, such as weakening gun laws, that's something that we need to be aware of. And the way that they got the story might have been a little bit unethical, but the public interest was served quite well. It's funny how the people calling this was unethical are involved with uh, news outlets that will entrap dodgy tradespeople and dodgy financial people and dodgy in much the same way. So it's almost a 
a, a case of if we do it, it's okay, but boy, if those others do it, oh, it's really terrible. If you're doing the right thing, there's nothing to be worried about. If the NRA had got in contact with them and they said, no, we're not interested, thanks very much, but go away, there wouldn't be a story here. One nation soliciting foreign money, which I think should be made absolutely illegal. We probably just should have publicly funded elections in which we do anyway, in, in which if you get a certain amount of the vote, I think it's 4%, you get a dollar eighty per vote, which I think is a good thing. It helps smaller parties keep a, a, a profile. And we need smaller parties as much as we need the bigger parties, even when we don't agree with those smaller parties. And it keeps it a, a little bit fair. And we also know where the money's coming from. And I think we should just perhaps ban all private donations to elections. Now, one other thing that I have noticed recently is this idea of celebrity checks and ministers announcing grants that haven't actually been authorised yet. We did have the spectacle of the Environment Minister, Melissa Price, and Liberal MP Chris Cruther from Victoria. They announced three grants of up to $20,000 in key marginal seats. That includes posting videos of them with the recipients, posting those on social media. Now, this is all well and good. That's what MPs are allowed to do. They can actually announce grants that they're giving out. But the only problem was that in this case, the applications hadn't even been opened yet. They hadn't actually been announced. And there's different levels of pork barrelling, but this to me seemed quite new. And there's one other factor that we've come across as well, and that's uh, the, the prime example was Georgina Downer in the seat of Mayo and these large celebrity checks. And it makes it sound like She's the actual MP that's responsible for delivering these programs, even though she's not even an MP. And we're seeing that in quite a few seats where the celebrity check comes out, the local candidate for the Liberal Party is there to announce the the handing over of the money. And I've checked to see whether this is legal or not. Apparently it is legal, but it's certainly not ethical. It shows the level of desperation. She should have a fairly high profile in the seat of Mayo where she grew up, her father being the local member and Alexander Downer was a very senior member of the Liberal Party and uh, had achievement. You know, he was foreign minister, UK high commissioner, etc, etc. She, of course, moves out of South Australia um, and then tries to parachute into the, the seat of Mayo. Uh, Rebecca Sharkey easily won it last time. From what I can tell, these stunts of having Georgina be present at the grant handouts haven't gone down well. And that process of trying to maximise every single undeserved opportunity has been the feature of this parliament. With this type of approach, there are going to be other consequences that arise from this. Instead of focusing on good policy outcomes that can benefit the electorate, which you would think would give your party a good outcome at the ballot box, the government has focused on political games and This has caused a high level of dysfunction. But what epitomises that high level of dysfunction for me in this parliament is Fraser Anning. He's an accident of history and he shouldn't be in the Senate. He did become a senator after One Nation's Malcolm Roberts was found to be ineligible. Roberts only received 77 primary votes of the 2016 election. Anning actually received less, 19 primary votes. Anning's vote will probably increase at this next election because he's become more prominent. 
but he's very unlikely to win his Senate seat again, and it should be good riddance to bad rubbish. He is a total and utter disgrace. The Senate was right to censure him. I think here is where Matthias Cormann should be congratulated for moving the motion and allowing Penny Wong to second it. So it was a total bipartisan motion. The feeling was very high. He has shown himself to be a bully and a coward when he famously slapped uh, Egg Boy. There's that second as he sizes up. Is he going to be able to slap this kid? It wasn't a natural reaction to an attack on the body. There was a calculation there. Once he realized he was bigger and maybe a bit stronger, he he slapped him. That's just cowardice. That's just bullying. Then, of course, his henchmen jumped on top of Egg Boy. That was a disgraceful display of the misuse of force. Had they taken him away? Yes, fair enough. And again, had there been an instinctive swing because he'd been hit on the back of the head, still not right, but understandable. Anning, of course, is a disgraceful figure whose opinions are appalling. And even members of One Nation find his opinions appalling. Anyone who has ever been to an Anzac Day commemoration should understand why Fraser Anning's views are so abhorrent. And he was right to be censured. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, listen through SoundCloud and Spotify, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, how long do we have to wait until the next election? In our last episode, we said the date of the next election would have been set by now, but we're still waiting and waiting and waiting, and it's almost like waiting for Gotto. Scott Morrison is trying to catch Labor with his pants down, but there's not too many surprises available to the Prime Minister. Realistically, there's only two dates the election can be held, May 11 or May 18, and we're beginning to wonder what the delay is all about. Holding off for as long as possible means that there's more access to government-funded advertising, more time to enjoy the trappings of office, and more time to use the shredders to destroy sensitive departmental material that could come back to bite them in the future. But for a government that is running out of options, it does mean that there's always a possibility that something might appear on the horizon that might totally change the dynamics of politics and deliver an unlikely victory. But based on what we've seen over the past three years, this is still very unlikely. There are only two dates available, realistically, to the government. So why is Scott Morrison holding off on calling the election? It struck me yesterday, and I know that we've discussed this before. With most political leaders, you can illuminate the really stupid things. You can't with the current government. And I'm wondering if he's trying to work out if he can do a half-Senate election in May and then try and hold out for the House of Reps in October. I don't think there's very much chance of this, by the way. I think karma heads will prevail. But I'm wondering if he's looking at that option to try and get that knockout blow that that I think he's waiting for. I've seen a few people on Twitter say he's trying to extend the campaign through government announcers that are paid for by the public as much as possible. Apparently, the Liberal Party is... $3 million in debt, which is essentially bankrupt. Of course, governments will look at every possibility, such as 
um, an election on May 11 or May the 18th or even extending it to May 25th, which constitutionally is available to them. They'll even look at a half-Senate election before May the 18th and then holding off the House of Representatives election for as long as possible. Now, they do have to go at the absolute latest by November the 2nd at the end of this year, but it just gets down to what would be the net result of making such a decision. And sure, there's that opportunity where the longer a government stays in, and for someone like Scott Morrison, he's only been the Prime Minister since August. Like You, you want a Prime Minister to feel like they're part of the furniture, that they're around, they're familiar. That would be probably the only advantage that they would get, that he seemed more and more like a Prime Minister that's there for the long haul. But then the trade-off is that people have just been waiting to throw this government out for a long, long time. And that's not just me saying that. That's what the polls have been suggesting since August 2016, where they've had 165 consecutive polls, where they've been in a very poor position. And it's just hard to see how that would change over the next two or three months, unless you look at the circumstances that could possibly change. Like circumstances change all the time. There might be something that appears out of nowhere. You can look on the horizon and think, well, how will this all change? And then all of a sudden it does change. And then you look at it in hindsight and think, oh, of course that was going to happen. Of course that's where the election dynamics change. And maybe that's what Scott Morrison is looking for at the moment. I think he is. And I think New South Wales uh, heartened them a bit. The Australian is saying that despite the fact that I think aggregated polling puts the government at 47 to 53, with Labor being at 53. The Australian has said that the government is in with, within striking distance of a win. This is possible, I suppose. And despite the fact, too, that they had a royal commission to try and discredit Bill Shorten and Julia Gillard, nothing came up. I think the worst that came up was that Julia Gillard should have kept 25-year-old records for another job that she was no longer in, which seemed to me to be hardly a damning judgment. Bill Shorten is pretty clean. Of course, there are dirt units in both sides digging stuff up, and it may be they find something, if not on Bill Shorten, then on one of the other Labor front benches. So one advantage in being opposition leader for such a long time is that your opponents have found all the dirt that can be found and they've thrown it all. The kitchen sink has been thrown at Bill Shorten over the past five and a half years, and that's been enough time for him to divert all the negative material that's been pushed by his opponents and the media, and there's probably nothing new that's available that can damage him. Now, he's still an unpopular leader as far as the polls are concerned, but in the same way that the electorate put aside their questions about Tony Abbott when they voted in the coalition in 2013, it looks like the electorate is on the verge of repeating that step of voting in an unpopular leader, but this time on the Labor side. <laughs> the trouble here is not trying to sound like we're Bill fanboys. But the thing is, is that he's pretty clean. Okay, he was involved in the removal of two prime ministers, both in Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard, but that's how the party works too. And, of course, the Liberal Party has its own was it Matthias Cormann who they said the only man to have supported three prime ministers in one day? Dirt can rebound on you too if Bill Shorten gets torn down. 
I suspect it will be within Labor, and that will be to do with popularity. I don't think the Liberal Party can lay a glove on him at the moment. And despite what politicians say, they love political polls, and it's a little bit like any adjudication from a beauty pageant, but they absolutely love polls. And there's been a slight poll movement in the news poll for the government, so they're still lagging at 48 to 52. The latest Ipsos poll, which has come out on the same day, that actually showed a weakening of their position down to 47.53. So they've got a bit of good news and a bit of bad news on the same day. And it all feeds into this speculation about when the election will be called. And that brings up the whole issue of four-year terms. Like, we've been speculating about when the election will be called. It's got to be called by May the 18th at the latest, if it's a joint house election. It just seems quite a bit archaic. Every other state and territory in Australia has got fixed terms. So why can't we do that for the federal elections? The Prime Minister's pleasure of advising the Governor-General can and has backfired. It creates confusion. It creates all kinds of problems. And yeah, perhaps we should just move to a three or four year fixed term. Three years is probably not quite enough. Five years is too long. So perhaps four years is the the optimum amount. We need to rethink how the Senate is elected as well. But to have a Fraser Anning brought in, a David Lionhelm brought in, a, a radical leftists brought in who don't really represent the view of mainstream Australia. Some of those views should be represented in Parliament, but there needs to be some kind of mechanism so we don't end up with accidental senators. Four-year terms would mean eight-year Senate terms under the current rules, but there'd have to be some kind of constitutional fix that could get around that, and I'm sure it could be done. Yeah, eight years is a long time, but then the Senate is the the break on the excesses of the house it'll be sorted out there's some solution that someone will come up with that will allow for all of this that's it for this new policy podcast we're still waiting for an election date to be set but thanks for listening in anyway you can continue the conversation at our website newpolitics.com.au and if you're listening on itunes don't forget to give the program a five-star rating or a review i'm eddie Djokovic. thanks to all and it's goodbye to our listeners I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.